From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Office of Personnel Management announced that government employees and retirees who are enrolled in the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program will pay an average of 3.8% more in health premiums next year. The increase is slightly less than the hikes in 2021 and 2020. OPM said the, the lower premium increase is due to participants deferring doctor's visits, elective surgeries, and other procedures this year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Technology Modernization Fund Board has picked its first seven IT projects to back. Most of the projects are focused on strengthening cybersecurity, one of two areas Congress wanted the Office of Management and Budget to target. The other area is pandemic response. A total of 48 agencies or their components have applied for funding, totaling more than $2 billion. The first seven awards address projects related to last year's solar winds hack, which affected nine agencies. OMB didn't give details. Congress added $1 billion to the fund as part of the second pandemic stimulus package and encouraged OMB to focus on pandemic and cybersecurity needs. The U.S. Space Force has awarded a $48 million contract that will demonstrate a prototype system to connect space operators with warfighters worldwide. SEV-1 Tech will build the prototype as part of the Air Force's Advanced Battle Management System. That system is a component of the Joint All-Domain Command, Command and Control Network, or JADC2, a Defense Department initiative to connect sensors and shooters worldwide in real time. The goal is to develop a high-bandwidth network that can connect warfighters in all services, the intelligence community, and foreign mission partners. On top of the COVID-19 pandemic and ongoing economic recovery and natural disasters, the federal government is staring down at another potential government shutdown. The threat of a shutdown makes governing unnecessarily difficult, according to Max Steyer. He's the president and CEO of uh, Partnership for Public Service. Max, welcome back to the program. Thank you. You know, you said recently that even just the threat of a shutdown already harms federal workers. How is that? Well, you stated it really well at the very front end here. We face a huge number of giant challenges as a country and our government is central in addressing them. And it's, when we say our government, we're really talking about our career civil servants, that that is our government. And we want them focused on the pandemic, the economic recovery, uh, long-term climate change issues, national security problems. And right now, many of them can't be focused on that because they have to their responsibility right now to prepare for a shutdown that we hope doesn't happen, but they're being distracted from the key critical work that they need to be doing on behalf of the American people. That hurts all of us. You know, Congress hasn't passed all 12 appropriations bills uh, it needs on time since 1997. That's 24 years ago. I wonder what that, what that tells you about the process overall. Well, and a you know, really important historical perspective because we can be you know, narrowed into this year and say, this is a problem, but we'll get past it. The reality is this has been a problem, as you just said, for many, many years, and it's a problem of our own making. Congress is responsible for passing the 12 appropriations bills every year, and they just haven't done it. And they're setting the rules. And so I think the lesson to be learned is the system 
doesn't work. We need to change the system. There are some, um, you know, promising fixes that have been proposed. Senators Lankford and Hassan. Have yeah, a, I wanted to ask you know, about that. Yeah. It's, it's called the Prevent Government Shutdowns Act, right. which and sounds like a really uh, good idea. Yes, it's common sense. And, and the basic proposition is it's Congress's responsibility. The default doesn't actually have to be a shutdown if they don't do their job. The default can be a, a continuing resolution. I have to add that a continuing resolution isn't actually doing their job. And for me, the metaphor is we know we're going to need a full loaf of bread, but Congress is just giving money for single slices on the way to a loaf. And you can't really plan and you're surely going to spend a lot more money than you need by doing it that way. But it's way better than a shutdown. And in addition to making the default a continuing resolution, they also make it difficult for Congress to do anything but focus on their job. They, they don't allow them to spend their budget on traveling elsewhere. They, they require quorum calls. And I love Senator Lankford talks about how in his family, if he and his brother uh, were uh, in a dispute, um, his parents would put them in a room and close the door and say, figure it out. And that's essentially what this legislation would do. It'd say, Congress, get it done. And that's clearly the right thing to happen here. We should not be in this same situation year after year. It really does us incredible harm. And we're seeing that that harm is only growing um, when we have more and more challenges to deal with. Well, speaking of the harm, Max, you have a report um, written in 2019. The subtitle is how the longest shutdown in U.S. history did lasting damage to our government and the people it serves. What is that lasting damage? Well, it's profound and it happens across the board. I heard um, we have a actually a, a podcast called uh, uh, you know Profiles and Service, and I and I actually Michael Lewis just did it. Uh, we released it yesterday, and um, the the hosts for that um, are Lauren and Rachel from my office. And Lauren told this wonderful anecdote about how the North Pole actually moves, and one of the responsibilities of government uh, you know public servants is to measure where the North Pole is, and that's actually really important. Um, for our GPS system. And during a shutdown, that measurement doesn't take place. Therefore, our GPS systems get out of whack. Um, it's everything. It's everything from FBI investigations to, you know, another stat that I just heard was that 84% of CISA, the organization at DHS that's responsible for cyber response, would be put on furlough in the case of a shutdown. I mean, you think about it, the emergency personnel are required to work without pay, which is nutty in and itself. They'll eventually get paid, but they don't get their paycheck on time, which matters. Um, but all kinds of things that are necessary for the maintenance of our government and for fundamental activity get shut down. And that creates incredible harm, not just now, but for the future. Well, I mean, besides uh, passing that Prevent Government Shutdowns Act, what are you suggesting to Congress as far as concrete steps? Well, again, I think that would be a huge step. I mean, literally, it would take the shutdown off the table. Um, I think, you know, ideally we'd be looking at things like biannual budgets. Um, one of the challenges here is not just Congress not getting the budgets done, but even a year's time is not enough time ultimately for a lot of agencies to plan. Uh, you know, there are ways in which, frankly, Congress could enable more um, uh, budgeting across the whole enterprise. So like, for example, the Technology Modernization Fund is really a good example of that. We really need to look at our government as an integrated enterprise rather than the individual components that we have right now. Um, there are lots of ideas about how to improve things. Uh, and you know, I think the core of it is reducing the number of Senate confirmed positions. So we actually have people in place in government that are thinking about the long term and actually incentivized to focus on, on, on big issues. So 
Um, our government is in need of an overhaul. And, uh, you know, stopping shutdowns is a starting point, as you say, but it's not the end point. All right. Well, let's hope. Uh, thank you, Max, so much for being on the program. Hey, thank you so much for the important work you're doing. Coming next, more on the latest on the government shutdown. Straight ahead on Government Matters, my conversation from earlier this week about the impact of a shutdown for federal workers. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Another government shutdown is brewing. If Congress doesn't pass the budget, a proposed continuing resolution would fund the government, the federal government, until December. Democrats have attached a measure to that CR to increase the debt ceiling. Jessica Clement is staff vice president of policy and programs for the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Jesse, welcome. Hi, Mimi. Thanks so much for having me. So what's different this time than in the past? You mean then always on September 28th, <laughs> 29th, 30th, where we constantly seem to be having this conversation? Um, I think this time there are so many more moving parts than we're used to, particularly that debt ceiling that we are going to run out of extraordinary measures on October 18th, plus an ongoing conversation in Congress about the infrastructure package and the $3.5 trillion um, Build Back Better reconciliation bill, all of which are kind of culminating as part of this CR conversation. So tell me a little bit more about the budget reconciliation bill and how does the debt ceiling play into that? It's a really good question. As you noted in your intro, House Democrats tied the continuing resolution with an increase in the debt limit um, almost through the end of next year. And Senate Republicans said, nope, absolutely not. We're not voting for a debt limit. So now the conversation is like, well, how do we raise the debt limit? Because we have to do it to pay our bills or we're going to default. So I, it's my understanding that the conversation now is, can that be attached to reconciliation? And the reason that conversation is taking place is because reconciliation only requires a majority, simple majority vote in the Senate. So if all 100 senators are president, present, it's a 50-50 vote. Vice president can cast the tie-breaking vote. If you have 99 senators present, all you needed is all you need is 50 to pass it. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell's been very clear; his caucus is not going to vote to increase the debt limit. So it's unclear what Senate Democrats, what tools they have, if not reconciliation to get that debt limit passed, which is very much fast-tracking the debt limit, the um, reconciliation conversation that's being had in Congress right now. But the debt limit is later. I mean, we're, we're looking at reaching that maybe in mid-October. Right. Those are the estimates. But as far as the federal shutdown, mm -hmm. that could happen. Um, you, you day, know. After, day after tomorrow, <laughs> no big deal. You know, at the time of this taping, you know, anything could yeah. happen. But I'm just wondering, how does that affect federal employees if the government does shut down? I, I've been joking a lot this week that it's very deja vu-y. Like, we've just been through this. I like, seem to always be on this show talking about a government shutdown, either towards the end of September or when, that's, when the CR runs out. So right now, you know, we need funding starting October 1st, which is... Friday. So Congress needs to pass appropriations by midnight on Thursday, tomorrow. Tomorrow, If they don't, federal employees know whether or not they can show up to work on October 1st. You're either, um, you know, essential or non-essential. And if you're essential and you have to go to work, you don't know when you're going to get paid. 
if you are non-essential and you're staying home, you also don't know when you're getting paid. Um, those, the employees that stay home during a shutdown know they will get paid eventually. That is, that is now a law. Congress doesn't have to pass that funding anymore. They will get paid. Uh, when seems to be the big question. When we went through the shutdown last time, 30 plus days. Well, in a 30 day time period, your rent is due, your mortgage is due. You gotta and pay not, groceries. You, you gotta pay your bills, yeah. right? Um, and so for federal employees, even though you know you're gonna get paid eventually, the anxiety that comes with that um, hardly seems worth these partisan fights, really does. What about agencies? Do they know, do they have plans in place as to what to do when when the money runs out? So most agencies, I think, do. We've been, unfortunately, we've been through this enough times that they know. Oh, OMB sent a memo last week saying, hey, start preparing for a shutdown. Um, to our knowledge, employees are being notified, hey, you know, you got to come to work on Friday or you can't come to work on Friday if the government shuts down. But I think about what it takes to prepare for a shutdown. I mean, these conversations started a week, two weeks ago. And I think about all the work that's not getting done because those conversations are taking place, right? And this is just not an efficient way to run our government. It's not, it's, it's no way to run a business. Why would we run our government like this? So what about the federal response to COVID-19? I mean, obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I don't need to re <laughs> remind Look anybody. The distance between us right <laughs> exactly. now. <laughs> so what happens if the government shuts down? Does that shut down? That's a, that's an excellent question. I'm, uh, you know, as you're asking that question, I'm wondering how many people who outside of a pandemic wouldn't be deemed essential who may now be because we are in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, trying to take care of the American public in addition to doing all of our regular jobs. It's an excellent question that I'm not quite sure anyone has a good answer for. So what's your best guess, uh, Jesse, on, you know, is the government going to shut down? Are we going to get, we're going to go into a CR? How is mm -hmm. that going to work? So I've been burned by that question in, on this show in the past, but I'm going to answer it honestly anyway. And if I'm wrong, so be it. Um, I'm not much of an optimist, but all signs point to the fact that uh, as of this taping, the Senate will pass a continuing resolution today that may or may not get through the House today. If it doesn't go through today, it should go through tomorrow um, on Thursday and be to the president's desk before midnight tomorrow. Thursday, September 30th. As of this taping, all signs are pointing to that. I've obviously had a number of conversations with staff, with members of Congress that are saying, don't worry, don't worry, we're going to pass a clean CR. We're not going to shut down the government. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And I'm like, yeah, I've heard this before. So I think the chances as, I, as we tape this show today are pretty low, um, but this is Congress and anything can happen. Anything can happen. Mm -hmm. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us and let's hope for the best. Thank you. Another crisis may be brewing with North Korea as they continue weapons tests. Development of long-range ballistic missiles that reach the U.S. homeland also continue unabated. Robert King is the Korea chair and a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Bob, welcome to the program. Good to join you. The North Koreans are accusing the U.S. of, quote, hostility. What are they seeing that they consider hostile? Uh, anything the United States does is basically hostile. Uh, their interest is in dominating the entire Korean Peninsula. And anything that we do or anything that anyone else does to uh, hamper that is hostile. Why has North Korea been conducting these missile tests now? 
are they simply trying to get some attention? Like, what are they actually looking for with those recent tests? Part of it is there's a certain logic as to when the tests are needed. Uh, when you're developing weapons, you know, at a, at a point you need to test and then you can go back and evaluate the tests and, and make the next steps. So there's that logic, which is, is the logic of, of, of moving forward on, on their, missile pro, uh, their missile testing program and their missile development program. Uh, on the other hand, they're usually timed to create as much political influence uh, or as create as much political problem for the United States and South Korea as possible. And that's basically uh, what happens. So what kind of problems are they looking to cause the U.S.? Uh, right now, South Korea has a president who's about to leave office. He has six, uh, six months to go. There's a little bit of opportunity here to try to do something that might help set a pattern for a, a different North-South relationship. Uh, they're anxious to do something to press the South Koreans to make concessions before uh, President Moon leaves office. Uh, they're not getting a lot of attention from the United States right now. The United States is focused on broader issues in terms of uh, dealing with the, the threat of China in, in Asia. And, and North Korea is not the number one U.S. concern. And it's always helpful to be at the top of the list. And periodically, you fire a missile to remind the U.S. that, that they're there and uh, uh, that they're causing problems. Well, uh, sanctions are still in place against North Korea. Are those working? The sanctions certainly have worked in terms of slowing down what the North Koreans have done. It's created problems for the North Koreans. It's created difficulties for their economy. Uh, the economy in North Korea is, is in very, very dire situation right now. They've got shortages of food because in part of weather, uh, they have difficulty in terms of importing products because of the sanctions. Uh, probably right now, even more important is the difficulty of, of COVID. The North Koreans are paranoid about uh, COVID uh, affecting them because their healthcare system is so fragile. And they're just uh, stopping uh, a lot of trade that otherwise would be flowing. So it's, it's a difficult time for North Korea. You know, Bob, I wonder what the message was, um, do you think, that the North Koreans took from the American pullout from Afghanistan? You know, I think that, that one is a mixed bag. On the one hand, the United States has the capability of projecting power halfway around the world. We're able to carry on activities there. We're able to send, uh, uh, move large quantities of, of personnel and material. Uh, and this is a huge distance from the United States. It's a clear indication to the North Koreans that we have the ability to project power uh, in the area where North Korea is most concerned in East Asia. Uh, on the other hand, there are questions about how uh, consistent the United States will be. Will the United States uh, pull out if, if things get tough uh, in South Korea, for example? Uh, I, on the other hand, I think one can argue that 20 years uh, of involvement in Afghanistan has indicated an ability of the United States to consist, uh, to persist in, in terms of what we've 
been doing there. Uh, Al-Qaeda is very different now than it was 20 years ago. We have changed the, the dynamic in terms of, of terrorism. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it's a, an all one way or all the other uh, in terms of the impact of Afghanistan on North Korea. So, Bob, how does our competition with China play into how the State Department, the military manage North Korea's nuclear ambitions? One of the things that has been particularly well done in terms of dealing with North Korea is that we've managed to maintain cooperation with China, with Russia, with uh, other uh, leading countries in the world uh, to limit North Korea's nuclear capabilities. There's no one that wants to see North Korea develop a greater nuclear capability, greater missile capability. And the fact that we've been successful in terms of working with the Chinese and the Russians in terms of doing that is, is a real accomplishment. On the other hand, the broader relationship between the United States and China is much more complicated. The Chinese have become increasingly assertive, Hong Kong, uh, naval presence. And so our relationship with China is a difficult one. There are areas where we cooperate, like North Korea, but there are other areas that in many ways are, are very significant. We don't cooperate, and we're trying to limit their capabilities. All right. Well, Bob, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be with you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Hit subscribe to see all the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 p.m. on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.